Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of uh, silent prayer so we can all make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and focus on what the Lord has to teach us. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed so very grateful that we can come before your throne of grace this evening and that we can uh, bring to you the uh, our prayers at prayer meeting, praying for those in this congregation who are some who are facing uh, serious uh, life-threatening health issues, some who are just facing ongoing uh, health debilitations. And Father, we continue to pray for them that they can face these health tests and crises and that they can... Uh, look to you and trust in you for strength and sustenance during this time. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray uh, during this time of election this year that your will will be done and that you will um, strengthen those who would seek to preserve our freedom, seek to preserve the literal intent of the Constitution and preserve freedom, and that you would foil those who would seek to limit it. And, Father, there are many who are seeking to uh, use illegitimate and illegal means to um, uh, dominate this election. We pray that you would follow those plots as well. Father, we're thankful that we know that you are the God who is always our sustenance and strength and our uh, foundation. You are our fortress and our rock. And Father, we pray that as we face the challenges of life and the ebb and flow of, of uh, blessing and difficulties, we pray that you would give us the strength to focus upon you and recognize that all that we have and all that we are comes from your grace, and that we might never forget the fact that you are the one who supplies everything worth having in life. And Father, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged this evening as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have been studying in Acts 8, and in Acts 8, we have this situation where Philip who is one of the uh, seven that's chosen to help the apostles, uh, is taken, um, uh, led by, the, by, first he's given an announcement by the, an angel to go to the road to the old city of Gaza in the desert and that he would meet someone along the way. And not knowing where he was exactly going or who he would meet, he took off, uh, completely obedient to God the to, to God in his direction through the angel. And as he was going, God the Holy Spirit was guiding and directing him. And we see the involvement clearly of God in this whole, in this whole episode. And the Spirit directs him to approach the chariot where he overhears the, this Ethiopian eunuch who is a high court official, uh, something akin to the Secretary of the Treasury for the Queen of Ethiopia, who goes by the dynastic title of the Kandake. And he is reading in Isaiah 53, and only two verses, verses 7 and 8 from Isaiah 53, are quoted in the passage, although it is more than likely that the entire passage uh, was, uh, was quoted. And so last time I began a study of Isaiah 53, and before we get back into Isaiah 53, I want to give, I want to contextualize this a little bit for us in terms of how we should be, uh, thinking about this. Because what we essentially see here is one of numerous situations in the book of Acts where we have personal evangelism. Now there's been some group evangelism that has taken place previously in terms of 
Peter preaching, proclaiming the gospel to uh, large audiences in the uh, temple precincts in Jerusalem. And then we've seen the witness of Philip in in Samaria uh, to apparently a large group. But here and in some subsequent situations, we see more of a personal uh, evangelism. And one of the things that I often caution us about in studying Acts is that Acts is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Now that, think about that a minute. It describes what happened, but the description of what happened is not a prescription or command for how things should be. This is not a stating a pattern, an ideal pattern for how things should be uh, in Christianity or in the Christian life. It is a period of transition uh, from the uh, Old Testament economy, the dispensation of the law and the age of Israel to the age of the church and the dispensation of grace. And so there, in this transition, there are some things that are going on during this initial period from the resurrection of Christ and the uh, day of Pentecost, the descent of God the Holy Spirit, in AD 33 to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which effectively ends the focus on Israel for the time being, and then um, the death of the last apostle in uh, somewhere in the 90s with the death of the apostle John. This is a transition period, and it's we refer to it as the apostolic age. There are lessons to learn historically, but we have to be careful what lessons we learn. And so before we get go back into Isaiah 53, I want to talk a little bit about the setting here in terms of personal evangelism. One of the most important things to have in personal evangelism is wisdom. And often wisdom in personal evangelism only comes from experience. So we've all made lots of mistakes and we've all made lots of errors uh, when we have uh, tried to communicate the gospel to others. That's how we get challenged to do a little better the next time, learn a little more. Uh, Ultimately, we must recognize that it's never up to us. We have to realize that Uh, the most well-crafted, intellectual, historically supported, evidentiary supported argument is not going to win the day because it's not about logic per se. It's not about evidence per se. It's not about how clearly you and I articulate the gospel per se. It is about God the Holy Spirit who is working in and through that. Now, that does not excuse ignorance of apologetics. It does not excuse sloppy presentations of the gospel, and it is not a justification for doing drive-by evangelism, which unfortunately is the case with a lot of people who just, you know, frankly, sometimes we don't want to get too involved in somebody's life. We just don't want to get to know them. We want them to get saved, so we'll throw the gospel at them maybe, and... uh, and we feel like somehow we have done done our job. But that's, that's not really the way things should be. We are to be involved with other people uh, to one degree or another. And 90% of the time, personal evangelism in our lives is going to be done in the context of developing relationships with people. And I think the more uh, our culture, and by our culture I mean Texas culture, Southern culture, U.S. culture, Western culture in that order, the more that culture has drifted from a biblical foundation and the more our culture around us has become biblically ignorant and biblically illiterate, the more time it's going to take to communicate the gospel to people because they are so ignorant of a lot of things. They're not like the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I want to just go over some things about the Ethiopian uh, eunuch here that make this a a sort of an interesting uh, scenario. Many people, some studies indicate, and this is uh, the way these studies are conducted, is they talk to believers and asked them how many times they heard the gospel before they trusted in Christ as Savior. And the average is about four or five times. 
And that would stand to reason because just like anything else in life, we have to come to understand something in order to believe it. Now, understanding can be a trap for some people. That's not the understanding of a theologian with a Ph.D. in systematic theology. That can be the understanding of a child, as Jesus said. It's just basically grasping the, the fundamental facts of the gospel and understanding those. And, um, but you have to understand it. You can't have a misunderstanding. You can't truly believe that something is true if you don't understand what the something is that you're believing. Now, that doesn't mean you understand it comprehensively or exhaustively, but it does mean that you understand it to the point where you grasp the essential, the essential meaning of it. So let's look at the Ethiopian here and see how, where he is on a spectrum of of learning, coming to understand the gospel. First of all, the Ethiopian already believes in the God of the Torah, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Philip doesn't have to stop and tell him who the God is that he's reading about in Isaiah 53. He has to explain to him the answer to his question, which is, uh, of whom does the prophet speak of himself or some other man? Question stated in Acts 8.34. But in terms of understanding who the God of the Hebrew Scriptures is, there's, there's no need. He understands who that is. Secondly, the Ethiopian eunuch already believes in the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. He has become, as I pointed out in the last couple of lessons, a, a proselyte of the gate. And that was a term to indicate uh, someone who was a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a believer in the God of the Torah. He believed in the authority of Scripture, but for one reason or another, and among males in, a, in that culture at that time, uh, as adult males especially, undergoing the rite of circumcision was something that kept them many from taking the final step of being a full proselyte and fully converting to, to Judaism. And by the way, from historical evidence, and I've been surprised to come to learn this in, in recent uh, uh, couple of months as I've done a lot more reading on uh, situations in the Second Temple period, but up truly until the late Middle Ages, Judaism was very, very strong in uh, proselyting. They were an aggressive, uh, aggressively seeking to add to their numbers. Now, that's very different from what you see in modern Judaism. In modern Judaism, they are very much against proselyting. Now, if people want to convert to Judaism, that's fine and wonderful, and they have procedures for doing it, but they are not actively engaged in, in proselyting. But in uh, the ancient world in the period of the Second Temple and up through the Middle Ages, they were actively engaged in, um, uh, in proselyting. So these, uh, these proselytes that were there had certain procedures to go through, but they were already uh, convinced of the existence of the God of the Bible, the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the Hebrew Scriptures were the Word of God and had authority. And this is one reason that he has taken the time to go to Jerusalem in order to be there for one of the annual uh, annual feasts. As such, the third point that we know about this Ethiopian is he already believes in the reality and the veracity of biblical prophecy. He believes that God speaks through his prophets, and those prophets have accurately foretold the future, and that biblical prophecy is indeed history written beforehand, so that he doesn't need to be convinced that that Isaiah, writing in the uh, 7th, 6th, 7th century, 8th century, rather, B.C., was writing about events that would not transpire for another 700 years. He, he believes that's totally possible and, is and does not need to be convinced that that is, uh, that is possible. Fourth, 
The Ethiopian believes in the validity of animal sacrifice, just like anybody else, any Jew in the um, ancient world up through the early Middle Ages, they believed in the validity of animal sacrifice, that, that God was perfectly, thoroughly righteous and just in calling for uh, an animal uh, sacrifice for ritual cleansing. This was accepted as completely, uh, completely valid and, and normative. So there's no question there about uh, animal sacrifice. Fifth, the Ethiopian already accepts the fact that there is a need for a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He believes in the Torah, all through the Torah, all through Exodus, all through Leviticus, and all of the different sacrifices that are outlined in Leviticus are instructions from God on how to be ritually cleansed when a person comes into the presence of God, and that this is done on the basis of a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, for the cleansing of sins. So he doesn't need to be convinced that that is legitimate. Sixth, the Ethiopian also already believes in the need for redemption and atonement. He knows that he needs to uh, have his sins paid for, that that's the meaning of redemption, to pay for sins. Atonement has that same idea, shading it a little more into the realm of cleansing of sin, not just the payment for sin, but the cleansing of sin. So he already believes uh, and has an understanding of these concepts because he has a literal understanding of the sacrifices, the guilt offerings, the burnt offerings, the um, peace offerings, all the different offerings that are laid out in, in Leviticus. Not only that, he believes in the validity of substitutionary atonement as a legitimate legal principle. Now think about that. He believes that one person can commit an infraction for which another person can be punished in his place. That is something that is lost in modern jurisprudence. In fact, when you or I are talking to anybody in our culture, that's a principle that's not accepted at all. Uh, today, we, we can go back a, a little over 100 years in, in our history to a point where uh, during the American uh, War for, in, uh, excuse me, the War between the States or the War of Northern Aggression, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, um, if you were drafted, you could pay someone to take your place and go fulfill your responsibility in the Army. And that was a common practice during the American uh, War between the States. That is a type of substitutionary payment. That was accepted then, but we don't have that anymore. Our, our judicial system completely rejects the idea that one person can pay the legal penalty for a, another person, at least as, as far as I know. So this is someone, though, who believes that already, that that is a legitimate, legitimate concept. Eighth, this is most important. God, the Holy Spirit, is obviously already working on the mind and in the heart of the Ethiopian. He is set. He has set up this whole encounter between uh, Philip and the Ethiopian to give the Ethiopian clarity in understanding what the Scripture is teaching. So God, the Holy Spirit, is already working. Uh, in the life and the thinking of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, ninth, the Ethiopian already has a concept of a literal human Messiah. Also very important. He understands this concept. He has been reading his Old Testament, his Hebrew Scriptures. He understands the predictions related to a Davidic Messiah. They, it may be fuzzy, it may not be real sharp and clear, may not be fine-tuned at all, but he has at least some vague notion that God has promised to the people of Israel a, uh, a savior, deliverer, a king who's a descendant of David. And then tenth, uh, this is the one thing he doesn't know. He is not yet informed about the incarnation of God the Son 
in Jesus of Nazareth. He's not informed about Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And he's not informed about the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. But everything else, the first nine points, have been well established in his thinking. He, he understands that. Today, when you listen to some people talk about evangelism, this is what they would call pre-evangelism. Before you can talk to somebody and tell them that uh, Jesus died for their sins, they have to have some understanding of sin and what it is. They have to have some understanding of Jesus and who he is. And as soon as you get into identifying who Jesus is, you use phrases like son of God and God. And in the uh, mishmash that makes up uh, what... uh, is contained between the ears of so many people in our culture today due to the dumbing down of education. There are a lot of people who just have extremely nebulous, uh, extremely erroneous, extremely fuzzy concepts of deity, of God, of the Bible, of of the Ten Commandments. Um, I have heard uh, anecdotes from different congressmen over the years, who have commented about someone coming in their office, some staffer uh, from some other uh, congressional office coming in their office and seeing the Ten Commandments on their wall and saying, well, what's this? And well, it's the Ten Commandments. And they just sort of shudder. And they say, well, have you ever read them? No, we'll read them. And then they read them and say, well, that's not so bad. There is this uh, portrayal of... Uh, the Bible and Christianity by those who are antagonistic to both Orthodox Judaism or uh, Judaism based on the Old Testament scriptures and Christianity that want to make the God of the Old Testament into this horrible, mean, uh, self-righteous, vindictive being who doesn't want anybody to enjoy life at all. And that is a complete distortion and misrepresentation of Scripture. There are other things that are frequently taught uh, again and again and again, reinforced by uh, numerous authoritative shows on the Discovery Channel and History Channel and PBS and whatever it might be, not to be uh, confused with the authoritative messages from a number of so-called Christian pulpits and Christian denominations that no longer believe in the authority of Scripture. They no longer believe in the Trinity in some cases. They no longer believe in the legitimacy of a substitutionary atonement. They no longer believe in many of these things. And so uh, when you come to passages like Isaiah chapter 53 and and talking about the, the suffering servant, there are as many erroneous Christian interpretations of this uh, passage today as there are among uh, Jews. It's interesting that if you go out on the internet today and if you were to Google Isaiah 53, you would discover that there are a vast number of uh, anti-missionary Jewish sites that are focused on refuting the Christian interpretation of Isaiah chapter 53. And if you get out onto the web and find some of these, uh, that might be a good a good thing for some of you because it would challenge you to see if you could even answer some of the objections that are raised. And uh, any uh, among Jewish people, if you are talking to them about Christianity, these would be some of the objections that would be raised. However, that would represent only a uh, probably a small number. Of, uh, of Jewish people today because many of them are not as informed about uh, Judaism and don't want to be. They're basically agnostic. If they show up at synagogue, it's during the High Holy Days, it's at Yom Kippur, and that's about it. Uh, we call folks like that who show up at Christmas and Easter the nod to God crowd. They just show up enough just in case it's true. Uh, they're going to uh, have their time card punched. But for the most part, um, most Jewish people aren't that different from just most people you'll run into in our culture in terms of their basic uh, belief system, and they all have some of the same basic problems. And this is what 
uh, we need to focus on. We can't just jump into a circumstance like, like Philip did because the, a lot of groundwork has already been laid. Uh, Paul talks about it using an agricultural uh, metaphor in 1 Corinthians that uh, one person comes along and plants, another person waters, but it's God that gives the increase. There are many different things that have to come together in terms of believing and understanding the gospel. And it doesn't come together apart from the work of God the Holy Spirit in a person's, in a person's life, as we'll see. And so we always have to remember that when we're talking to people, that they may not have a very clear understanding of what it means to believe in God. If they come from a certain religious backgrounds, for example, they come from a Hinduistic background, they come from some sort of animistic background, they come from an American Indian background. See, I'm not politically correct. They're not Native Americans. They're American Indians. And if they come from that background where they have a a group of gods, then they frequently just take uh, Jesus and put him on the shelf with all of their other gods because they haven't understood that he's the one and only deity, capital D, not just another deity, lowercase d, that he is unique like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they don't have a very good understanding of, of God. Second, if they do have a concept of God, it's probably not the biblical creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is righteous and just in love, and that there's not a contradiction in those attributes. We live in a world today that has front-loaded the thinking of many people with the idea that a God who is righteous can't be loving, and a God who is loving can't be righteous. And so with many people, they, when they start hearing the gospel, uh, you, they look at us and say, well, you're putting together ideas that are mutually, uh, mutually exclusive. Well, wait a minute. We have to go back and learn how to think all over again. So they've been, uh, we live in a post-Christian world today where there has been uh, at least 150, if not 200 years, of sophisticated development in anti-Christian arguments that have uh, filtered their way through and permeated the culture. And so people growing up even in 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade in schools have heard these things so many times that they have shaped, uh, shaped their thinking. So we have to explain what righteousness is and what justice is and what love is very patiently and very humbly and recognize that the God of the Bible is not a God who just sort of uh, overlooks people's uh, flaws and peccadilloes. See, that's how most people think of sin. Well, we all have our little flaws and failures, but we're not really sinners because they identify sin as certain kinds of horrendous actions. So sin would be genocide. Uh, Sin would be... Uh, maybe racism. Uh, sin would be sexual abuse of children. Sin would be uh, being a serial killer. But I haven't done those kinds of things, so I'm not a sinner, and God will somehow balance things out. I'm basically a pretty good person. And that is embedded within the thinking of many people. So we have to uh, sometimes take the time to talk to them. Now, that's not true for everybody. It depends on where they are uh, on, the, on the spectrum. If there are, let's say, for example, uh, 10 steps between being a complete ignorant, uh, an individual completely ignorant of the gospel and somebody who's trusting in Christ, they may be at the first step, they may be at the last step, like the, like the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And we can't come in and talk to somebody who's just taking the first step as if they're at the last step. They have no idea what we're talking about. We live in a world today where a few people believe in the legitimacy of biblical predictive prophecy. Over and over again, they have been told that these people who wrote prophecy in the Old Testament, those books were written after the fact, and they just uh, claim to have been written by people who lived 
before the events. And then they will uh, sometimes have a certain amount of, of uh, uh, attempts to give evidence to that. But for the most part, people don't believe that there's real prophecy unless, of course, it's from Nostradamus, right? Fourth, a lot of people don't believe in sin or total depravity. They don't believe that we're born corrupt, that everybody is a sinner. That doesn't mean that you always commit evil things. Many times you're, we do good things. They have a, a very weak view of what, of what sin is. Uh, they don't have a concept of the need for atonement for sin. In contrast to the Ethiopian, he knew clearly there had to be atonement for sin, but people today don't 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 have any sense of that. Six, they don't. Further, they don't believe in a substitutionary payment for sin, or they reject it as a concept that is totally unfair and completely fraudulent in jurisprudence. Now, there's an interesting challenge to overcome. Somebody who says nobody can pay the penalty for somebody else's sin, no matter who they are. Seventh, they certainly don't believe animal sacrifice is a good thing, especially if they're a member of PETA. They just think that um, this is evil and cruel, and all that, that Old Testament religion was just such a bloody, bloody thing. And there were all of those poor animals that were just slaughtered. Uh, God is just a, the God of the Old Testament is just a, a, a bloody God. So they don't understand what any of that is related to. Eight, they don't understand anything about the need for a substitutionary atonement, that they're incapable of providing a solution themselves, so someone else needs to provide it. These are not difficult things to explain to people, but they don't necessarily come to the conversation uh, assuming that these are valid concepts. Uh, ninth, they may not at this point in time have God the Holy Spirit illuminating their minds to the truth of Scripture. So they may just not want to hear. They may they may be in, uh, completely negative and they just don't want to hear. And I've had that experience talking to people where you begin to uh, bring, move the conversation in the direction of the gospel. And they say, I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. Let's change the subject. And they just shut you down. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit is working in the background and they're just putting up a big roadblock and saying no. But they don't want to uh, have any of their uh, beliefs or ideas uh, challenged. It's amazing today how few people really want to know the truth. They just don't want to know. They're comfortable with whatever uh, it is that they have uh, that they have believed in order to make themselves feel comfortable and secure, and they're not willing to take what they believe and put it out there for the spotlight of, of investigation. And I remember when I was a, a young man, when I was in uh, high school and college, I wanted to believe something that that was true, that had evidentiary value behind it. Uh, that was, that you could take to the bank that you knew wasn't just something that people had cobbled together, to, as uh, Karl Marx said, uh, referring to Christianity as the opiate of the masses. And by the way, uh, Karl Marx will probably be in heaven. Uh, when he was a teenager, his father converted from Judaism to Christianity. And for a period of about three years, Karl Marx, in, when he was in high school, was a very strong advocate of Christianity. And I have it on authority of a friend of mine, pastor, who read a paper Marx wrote. He's still trying to find it in his files. Uh, but he had a paper that Karl Marx had written in high school on justification by faith alone. And he clearly understood the gospel. But then he rejected it, as Christians can do. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation, but it does mean that they uh, are clearly in rebellion. And... Uh, uh, go against go against scripture, and so Karl Marx said that Christianity was the opiate of the masses, and there are are people who think that that's what religion is, that it's purely subjective, and there's no historical foundation. Well, I challenge you: if you don't believe that Christianity is true, then prove it. If you're going to make a truth claim then that means that you have understood that it is provable or 
disprovable. That's the essence of saying something is true or false. But today we live in a postmodern world, and so the way people get around that is they say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, it's very difficult to deal with somebody on the basis of evidence and logic when they have adopted a basic, ir- basically irrational view of knowledge from the get-go. Then you have to really go back to square one because you have to disabuse them of the notion that knowledge is irrational, and that is another, another issue. But that is part of a conversation. As I pointed out before, I had a, a uh, friend of mine, a man who was... Um, who was a professor of military science, the uh, lieutenant colonel in the Army, and was the uh, commander of the ROTC cadre at Stephen F. Austin uh, State University, where I went to school. And the first time I witnessed to him was when I was a freshman in college. And the last time I witnessed to him was about six months before he died. And he is in heaven today because he finally did trust the Lord. It took 30 years. That's, that's a long-term relationship. And when we went through the gospel, he had questions. I think any thinking person uh, is going to have questions that we should try to answer because they want to make sure that they're not putting their brain in neutral, uh, they're not committing intellectual suicide because that's what they've heard from the world all, all their life. And they want to they hear what that answer is. And I saw as I was uh, answering questions uh, for him over a period of several days, and in the, in, in, somewhere in the middle of that I sick Gene Brown on him and uh, always send in a good evangelist if you, if you need to. And um, uh, somewhere along the line, the, I could tell that the questions changed in their tone from help me understand how I can believe that in light of, X to, and it, it wasn't something he said, but you could tell he had already, he had believed. Now he just wanted to make sure he, he had done the right thing. That he wanted to make sure the evidence supported what he had done. He wanted to understand it better and have greater clarification. And that often is the case. So that, but there's the work of God, the Holy Spirit over many, many years. And too often what we want to do is we want to, uh, somebody brings up God and we want to drive our gospel truck right through that, that opening without proper foundation. And I've seen this happen uh, quite a few times. And, you know, it, it, that's not to say God can't use it, but it's not the most effective way of presenting something to someone uh, just because we don't know what what they understand when they hear us. Uh, the last point is that establishing the truth of many of these points may take time, depending upon uh, where they are in their prior understanding. If you're talking to somebody who grew up in church and has a background of hearing uh, the gospel presented, hearing Bible teaching, then when you present the gospel to them, all of a sudden something clicks. They're, they're just almost there. They just needed a little, a little bit of a push. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. That's a command. We are to set apart God in our thinking. That's the idea behind hearts. And always be ready to give a defense uh, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What that word apologia is, where we get our word apologetics, just basically means a reasoned, organized explanation or rationale uh, with evidence of why we believe what we believe. Why, why do you believe that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? I've heard people say, well, don't you know that when you die, that's it. There's nothing more. That's the end. And they're happy with that. That's because they've been suppressing the truth with unrighteousness for so many years that they've built up this scar tissue on their on their soul, and they just they 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 have now convinced themselves, sort of a self brainwashing technique, that it's just fine and good. That if I die, that's it. But I bet if you took those same people and took them back when they were seventeen, eighteen, or nineteen years old, and told them that tomorrow you're going to die, they would not be comfortable with the fact that that would be the end of their existence. 
because there's something that God built into the human soul and recognition of that, uh, that there is life after death and that there is an ongoing existence. And we want to believe that. I think uh, uh, many unbelievers want to believe that, but they don't see where there's any hope or certainty, and so they, they have rejected the truth, and they just continue to cover over the truth with uh, unrighteousness, which is Romans 1.18. But our responsibility is to give that reasoned, organized answer, explanation, just answering questions. It doesn't have to be sophisticated, but it has to be done to the best of our individual ability. Some of us can do a better job than others. Some of us might have a spiritual gift of evangelism and can do a better job because we, it's spiritually enhanced. But we can't do it on our own. It's not, it's not how well you give the answer that's the issue because the problem isn't an intellectual problem to begin with. The problem isn't a moral problem. The problem is a spiritual problem and a rejection of truth. And the only solution is to respond to the spiritual truth, remembering that the, that the unsaved person doesn't have the inherent capacity to understand spiritual truth. The Spirit of God, though, reveals that truth to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 states that the natural man does not receive or accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, the term natural man is a Greek word, psychikos, which just means the soulish man, as opposed to the pneumatikos man, the spiritual person. The spiritual person is the one who's been regenerate. The psychikos is the soulish person who's still spiritually dead, and he doesn't have the inherent capacity to understand the things of the Spirit of God. And if you trace this word, the things of the Spirit, through 1 Corinthians 2, starting back in about verse 8 or 9, where you have a quote or a paraphrase from Isaiah. Uh, all through that section, that refers to the paraphrase, the things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, the things that have not entered into the mind of man. Uh, these have been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. And so this verse is talking about the, the that which God has revealed through the Spirit of God, that they are not uh, uh, accepted by the unbeliever. He thinks it's foolishness. So unless the Spirit of God is working upon a person, they're not going to they're not going to respond to it. So in Acts eight we have an example of an individual who has already put into place most of the ideas in the gospel and he accepts those as true. He just didn't have that final piece of information that Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnation of the eternal second person of the Trinity and that his entire life was a fulfillment of well over a hundred prophecies about the Messiah from the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. There are over 400 prophecies given in the Old Testament related to the Messiah. Now, some of those have not been fulfilled yet. That is because there's a distinction that must be made in the career of the Messiah. He is a suffering Messiah, and he is a ruling Messiah. There is a glorious aspect to the messianic rule, and there is a suffering aspect. And Isaiah 53 focuses on that. But what's interesting in the course of time, the exegesis of the rabbis, that is their interpretation of this passage, while it clearly and in many cases recognized that Isaiah 53 was about an individual Messiah. In fact, that was a, the dominant view and even a, dom, uh, a dominant view among those who uh, re, uh, kind of rejected that or tried to create a hybrid uh, interpretation in the late Middle Ages related to corporate, corporate Israel. They still understood some sort of substitutionary aspect there. But that, that they, they understood this, this messianic implication, but it wasn't the Messiah who suffered in the passage, it's the people of Israel that suffer in the passage. And so they, they change that. It's a very interesting thing to deal with in terms of uh, understanding interpretation. And I point that out because a lot of times today, that's where a lot of the, the, the battle, a lot of the explanation that has to go. We, we live in a world today where nobody wants to 
wants to interpret something on the basis of original intent of what somebody says. Now, they'll interpret a love letter from their girlfriend or boyfriend that way. They will interpret um, a speeding ticket that way. They will interpret the instructions for their income tax that way, but they won't interpret poetry or the Bible or many other things that way. They want to shift the source of meaning to the individual and who receives it or reads it and not the individual who who wrote it. And so because of that, there's often a lot of challenges. And I challenge you, too, if you are interested, uh, go out on the Internet, see if you can look at some of these uh, websites that uh, try to reinterpret Isaiah 53 to mean something else and see how you would handle or answer these objections, knowing that you need to give an answer for the hope that is in you, how would you answer some of the objections that are put out there by other people? I know Tom Wright uh, has uh, uh, come up with a number of different, uh, read a lot of this on, on the Internet and asked me lots of technical questions as he studied this o- over uh, the last several years. But this is this is not uncommon. So let's go back to where we were last time and look at this introduction to the this what is called the fourth servant song. I identified that last time. We'll look at the outline in just a minute. Uh, this is a term that has come into acceptance to uh, uh, identify these four uh, sections within the the servant section of uh, of uh, Isaiah, which goes from Isaiah 40 to the last chapter, Isaiah 66, because these stand out and they're introduced by this clause, "Behold." Uh, my servant. And so the question is, who's the servant? And this is one that always gets raised in the discussion. And and frankly, if you're talking with most people, they don't know who Isaiah is. Uh, if you if you ask if you're talking to somebody who's Jewish, I would bet you ninety ninety eight percent of them don't know who Isaiah was. Or they'll say, oh yeah, he had something to do with the Bible. But I've even quoted Isaiah to some. Um, uh, Jewish people before and been told, well, I don't want to hear the New Testament. I just want to hear the Torah. Well, Isaiah's Old Testament, they just don't know. Uh, so, uh, that, I mean, that might be critical. I mean, we have to recognize that a lot of people just don't know anything, whether they're Jew or Gentile or whoever. They don't know anything about the Bible. And so we shouldn't assume that they do. Now, the identity of the servant here, there are several suggestions that are made that's a historic figure, Isaiah, or Elijah, Hezekiah. Some think it's the nation or the people of Israel and some the future Messiah. And the reality is, as I pointed out, that according to um, uh, Isaiah, there are many different people identified as a servant, but a shift takes place by Isaiah 48, 49, that the, that the Jewish people, Jacob and Israel have failed in their servant function. They cannot redeem themselves because they are spiritually blind and disobedient and they have pursued the idols of the of the Babylonians. And so part of the problem that Isaiah is dealing with is a problem that uh, Zechariah has to deal with after after the exile. Isaiah is focusing on it ahead of time, and that is that is once you get uh, the Jews out of Babylon. How do you get Babylon out of the Jews? They have absorbed that way of thinking. So according to uh, Isaiah 52, 14, and 15 here, we see that the God's servant uh, suffers for the people of Israel, indicating he is distinct from the people of Israel, and that his blood also will sprinkle many nations. Now, uh, I want to, I'll address that word as we go through this because there's a lot of debate over the meaning of that word that's translated sprinkle. But I, I think that's an accurate translation. There's a lot of very, very solid evidence behind it showing that it does mean sprinkle and not startle. Some, there is, there is, there's people who say that it means startle are not just making that up. There is evidence on their side, but this is where you always have to learn how to weigh evidence. We ought to know right now that on any time that there's a debate, any time there's an election and you have two people running for an office, that they are going to make claims. And just because somebody makes claims doesn't mean they are without evidence. We've all heard this. 
over the last few weeks especially. Somebody makes a claim and they'll cite all kinds of evidence. But you have to go look at the evidence. You have to learn how to evaluate and weigh evidence and see if they've accurately handled the evidence. Have they stretched the truth? Have they misrepresented the evidence? But any good lawyer, any good trial lawyer is going to be able to make a case and build a case and make it sound incredibly credible. But that doesn't mean it is. I, I, I often think of, um, of Alan Dershowitz, not one of my favorite lawyers, but he makes a fabulous case for the necessity of Israel and the existence of an Israeli state. And he just came out yesterday and blasted um, the mayors of uh, uh, the mayors of uh, it wasn't New York, it was Chicago. Chicago and Philadelphia. Chicago and Philadelphia pointing out that because they were um, coming out against Chick-fil-A because in an interview where the owner, its family-run company, where the owner of Chick-fil-A had been asked about his particular belief as a Christian about same-sex marriage, he had answered that. It does. Nobody has ever stated whether there's any policy in the company, apparently not, or that we would have heard that uh, related to uh, uh, the hiring or serving of people who are homosexual or who are, uh, who are homosexually married, whatever. Um, but Dershowitz came out and said, if you, if you are going to deny a company where the founder has this belief from having business in your city, that is the worst form of, of prejudice, and it has no place in this country. It is anti-business, uh, anti-enterprise, and it is completely against the Constitution and the laws of this country. Just a, He does a fabulous job. But Dershowitz is a guy that I would not want to run up against in terms of a debate. Because a good lawyer, a good debater, is someone who can take evidence and shape it and twist it and manipulate it and make it sound like it supports his case. And so what we always have to do when we look at things is look at claims and be able to weigh and evaluate evidence. Some people, it always amazes me every now and then uh, I hear somebody, uh, this has happened over, I don't know, maybe five or six times over the course of 30 years in the uh, pastoral ministry where somebody comes up and says, you know, I just think you're completely wrong about X, Y, and Z. Plug in, plug in, fill in the blank with free grace gospel, dispensations, music, whatever it is. And then they'll usually say, haven't you ever read such and so? Yeah, I read that along with 15 other books uh, setting forth that position. 30 years ago when I was in a Ph.D. program and I wrote a scathing rebuttal of the entire thing because it's built on a straw man argument. But just because you don't ever hear me refer to it in sermons or Bible class doesn't mean I fell off the turnip truck last week. And I'm always amazed at people who will come and they discover something yesterday and they come, all of a sudden, they overturn what they've believed for 20 or 30 years, and they come running to you and say, haven't you ever read this? Yeah, I read it, and I forgot about it so long. You weren't even born yet, spiritually or physically, when I forgot about that. It was so irrelevant. It's it just amazing. We have to learn how to think and weigh evidence, and that's called critical thinking, something lost uh, today. So that is what we have to do when we go through a passage like uh, Isaiah uh, 53. So it starts off, as I pointed out last time, identifying who the servant is. And there clearly are passages like Isaiah 48, uh, 41, 8, and 9 that identify the, the servant is Israel. Uh, Isaiah 44, 2 and 44, 21 identifies the servant as Jacob or Israel. But also passages all through Isaiah that indicate that Israel is too corrupt and sinful to be the servant who accomplishes redemption for the nation. I pointed out Isaiah 1.4, Isaiah 29.10, Isaiah 48.1. Uh, instead, only the servant can deliver Israel, that is, a servant who is righteous. Uh, Isaiah 52.9 speaks of this individual, that he redeems Jerusalem. He's the one in Isaiah 42.7 who opens blind eyes and brings the prisoners out of prison. Isaiah 50. Uh, 53, 11, uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant 
shall justify many. So how can righteous servant describe Israel when throughout this this prophecy Israel is described as being disobedient and and unrighteous? I pointed out the outline last time that it's a chiasm, and the focal point is in verses 4 to 6 in chapter 53, and that as we get into this, we focus on this whole concept, the servant shall deal prudently. I'm not going to get into some new material here, but I want to at least review this. Uh, this word here, behold my servant, and that he shall deal prudently. And the servant, uh, the word prudently really should be translated uh, with the idea of success. It has the idea of wisdom when it's, inter- when it's prior to application, success when it's after application. It's parallel in uh, Jeremiah 23, 5. A king shall reign and will be successful. So it's a proclamation that the servant will be successful in accomplishing the mission that God gives him. Pointed out last time that the Messiah, the servant, is also spoken of as the branch, the branch of Yahweh in Isaiah 4.2, the branch of David in Jeremiah 23.5 and 6, uh, my servant the branch in Zechariah 3.8, the man whose name is the branch in Zechariah 6.12, so this emphasizes he's a, he's a man, he's a servant, he's the son of David and the son of God. Here we go. There's the word translated uh, prudently. Sakal uh, means to understand something, to be wise, and in the application it is to bring about success. And so the, my servant shall be uh, successful and will be exalted and extolled and very high. And then we come to... Uh, The next section here, uh, verses 14 and 15, where I'll begin next time. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred. Now, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of the word marred. I think I'll just give you a clue right now if you're not back next week. I think marred is a correct translation. Just because there's a lot. See, the problem is we have words in the Hebrew text that aren't used a lot. And so there's debate good scholarly debate over the meaning of some of these words, but the evidence, I think, is is best that this should be translated and understood as as marred. Also, we have, it goes on, says, his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That's the second word where there's a lot of debate. What does that mean? Uh, there is a cognate word that's, uh, and a form of that word that's used that does indicate being startled. And so there's debate there, and there are those who will translate it, he startled many nations because of his presence. It surprised them. Uh, and so you could make a case for that, but that doesn't mean it's legitimate. So we'll have to look at that next time. What does it mean in that 14th verse, just as many were astonished at you? What does that mean, astonished? See, in, in English, we look at that and we say, oh, they're amazed. They're, it's wonder. But this is, is not the case. That word translated astonish is the Hebrew word shamem, which means to be desolate or appalled. It's used in that well-known phrase, the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 9. Um, it is a word that is used of divine judgment and the consequences of divine judgment. And so it is also applied to those who witnessed the horrors of divine judgment and are just appalled at what they have seen. And so the translation, many were astonished at you, is, doesn't convey the right nuance. It's many were appalled when they looked at you. Now when we understand that, that way it does shape where this passage is going. His visage, his countenance, his face was marred Now, if you translate that as anoint, it doesn't fit with the first line where we use a word that's setting up judgment. Um, There is a possibility, it's remote, that and some do want to translate this anoint. He was anointed more than any man, but it is the idea that there has been a disfigurement that has taken place of his face. He has been disfigured. And that fits with what we read in Isaiah 53, that there is uh, no form or comeliness. When we see him in verse 2, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, we hid our faces from him. We esteemed him not. And so 
Uh, he is marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. And then we get into that last verse where it talks about him sprinkling many nations. This is foundational for understanding uh, the setup. He is going to provide a cleansing for the nations. And we'll start there with that concept because these three verses have basically summarized what Isaiah 53 is talking about. This is our introduction. And so it connects the servant and the role of the servant back to the sacrifices and looking forward to what the servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would do. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, work our way through this passage to understand some things about uh, witnessing, about being a witness, about giving our testimony to others, explaining the gospel to others and how uh, we should uh, be prepared and how we should think about where other people are in terms of their thinking and work our way through uh, through our explanation in a way that they we make sure they understand what we are explaining. Father, we thank you for our time and your word, recognizing that you are the eternal faithful God who always supplies all of our needs and you are an ever-present strength in time of trouble. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.